Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make expiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. From the letter to the Hebrews, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today we are drawn to contemplate the Gospel of Luke's account of the Holy Family's appearance in the temple 40 days after the birth of Jesus. Can you believe Christmas was 40 days ago? It seems like an eternity. The family has come to Jerusalem to the temple to make a sacrifice for Mary's purification. In the book of Leviticus, it is commanded that every woman who gives birth must appear in the temple to make a sacrifice for sin, either a pair of doves or a pair of pigeons. This will, of course, seem to modern readers to be either terribly outdated, ancient history rather, or worse, outright misogyny. But in the Hebrew scriptures, the connection between sin and the dangers and pain of childbirth are quite real. We see this first in the curse given to Eve in the garden after the fall. We forget that childbirth is still a dangerous and harrowing event in the life of any woman. But we should not say that the pain of childbirth is a kind of punishment for sin. It is rather something God uses for redemption. I remember when our first baby was born, Moira, and the doctor who was a Baylor graduate, you can thank, be thankful for that, uh, you know, this, it sounds like a bad joke, a, ba a Baylor bear and an Aggie are talking after birth, uh, but, but we, we just remarked at how, how redemptive this act of bringing forth a baby is, how the pain leads to joy, how the suffering leads to sanctification. Childbirth is something that God uses for redemption. Through the years, I've visited lots of hospital rooms. After a birth, I've seen six of my own children born. And the mother, after she gives birth, is filled with joy after the most pain she's ever experienced in her life. Her heart bursts to meet this precious child. I've known many mothers through the years who worried deeply that they wouldn't love their babies. And at first sight, filled with pain and joy, tears in their eyes, they're filled with love. You see, the mother has become extremely vulnerable, vulnerable to pain and even death. The offering of these birds is a way of saying to God, you have preserved my life, we have a healthy child, we give you thanks. But the woman has also become vulnerable to the fact that the pain and suffering that her child experiences, she will experience as well. This is certainly the case with Mary, and it is indeed what Simeon says to her. But this sacrifice is also tied, and this may seem even more barbaric to some, to the loss of blood. The woman has shed blood, and so she must be purified. This again seems extremely old-fashioned, if not patronizing. But to that I want to say this, that every ritual in the law has the effect of explicitly tying the Jewish household to the temple. Blood is shed in the home, blood is shed on the altar of the temple. A baby is born at home, and thanks is offered at the temple. The woman makes a humble offering because the Lord has given her life, not only her life, but the life of her child. Holiness is not only for the temple, but for the home as well. This is something we actually very much need to see today, that there is actually, at the end of the day, no such thing as sacred and secular. We all inhabit a sacred universe. 
That's actually one of the things we've been doing by giving out this cross at House Blessings to draw this connection between home and temple, home and church, to make it explicit that holiness is not just for this place, but for your home as well. And so Mary goes with Joseph and the child Jesus to the temple, just as many other families did the same on that day. In order to give a full account, we must say that one of the deep injustices of that day was the price they paid for those two pigeons or two doves. There was a great markup at the temple, not only through the currency used, but through the sale of special birds at specially high prices. All four Gospels record that Jesus would later go to these very places and turn over the tables of those who sold those pigeons. It is to say that the sacrifice of the poor has become an occasion for taking advantage of poor people for profit, not just after the birth of a child, but for sin offerings of any kind. In Jerusalem of that day, sin had become big business. And in this account, Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph together offered sacrifice for their purification. Now, I have some guesses about this, and I hope you'll you know, give me pause for a bit just to throw out some guesses at this. But I wonder if this might not be because Joseph had attended the birth personally, that there was no midwife there, that uh, there was no one there, and therefore he must have needed the same kind of purification that Mary needed. Another explanation would simply be to say that they together are making a sacrifice as a family. But this gospel account is given to us to tell us, as Luke puts it, that the Holy Family kept the law in its entirety. And yet, Luke leaves out mention of one of the things that Leviticus asked for, which is the sacrifice of a lamb, which was also required on that day as a means of redeeming the firstborn son from the requirements of the priesthood. But we read nothing of this. The reason we can speculate, we probably know it, you're probably anticipating it right now, that Jesus is the perfect lamb. He is the perfect priest. He offers himself as both priest and victim to the whole world. He need not be excused from priestly service, and therefore there is no need for the lamb. As Hebrews tells us, he had to be made like his brethren in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make expiation for the sins of the people. But yet there's one more thing happening that we often miss in reading this account. In this wondrous scene, this very human scene, Mary and Joseph offer these sacrifices to God. They are subject to the cruelty of an abusive temple system and yet they do all of this, holding not only the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God, but God himself. They have brought him to the temple. The law had told them every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. But here they hold him who is not only called holy, but is holiness itself, who has been born among a people who are unclean so as to make them clean. Mary and Joseph knew this. The angels had told them. The archangel Gabriel had said to Mary on the day that she conceived this child, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. To Joseph, the angel of the Lord had said, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
And on the day of Mary's purification, two prophets are standing by to confirm what she and Joseph already know. Two elderly and quite holy children of Israel have waited for the revealing of the Messiah, and they are there in the temple. Now, let me remind you, as I often have, that the first, te- first century temple was a place devoid of the presence of God. God has quite literally left the building. By the way, there's a story that that reminds me of. When I was first a priest, uh, we, we had a, it was, it was a Sunday morning, and this uh, woman in her 80s had just received a cell phone as a gift from her children, and she was a huge Elvis fan. And uh, she, her children had loaded onto it some Elvis tunes as ringtones. And so right in the middle of the sermon, the phone goes off. I think it was like, love me tender, or all shook up, or something like that. And she fumbled with the phone and was trying to stand up and get out or turn off, turn off mute. She didn't know how to do it. It was a complete mess. It's loud. The preacher just stopped, Father Crary, and uh, he waited for the whole fracas to die down. Finally, she walked out the back doors, and he, without missing a beat, said, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. <laughs> but the temple, getting back to the temple, the temple is a place that God has left. He's no longer there. Unlike the first temple, which was shrouded in the cloud of divine glory and the dwelling place of the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, and literally, we want to say this, a cloud was over the first temple. It was a dwelling place of the Ark of the Covenant. And unlike that, the second temple was a reminder of exile. We're told that those who saw it and who'd seen the previous one wept. Since the Babylonians had sacked the city and destroyed the temple, even though a portion of Jewish people had returned, many were in exile throughout the world. And even those living in Jerusalem could consider themselves exiled from their God. The question on the lips of many in the temple on that day was just as it had been for over 500 years. When will God return? When would the God of their fathers come to set things right? The messianic hopes of the nation were not shared. Many had given up hope. Their patience had been tried. And many believed that these were just a bunch of fanciful tales that had been told to them in their childhood. Some hoped simply for a military leader. Some hoped for a philosopher king that the God of Israel would come into the temple that day as a human being veiled in flesh, carried by his mother and father as they made an offering for sin would be simply beyond belief. These two old prophets, Simeon and Anna, exemplify not only the hopes of the nations, but the hope of a faithful remnant in which they are joined by Mary and Joseph. In fact, they show two very different ways of being the remnant. Two are holed up in the temple, and two are at home. They're homemakers. They make a home for Jesus. But both do, in a way. These two are kind of the celibate side to Mary and Joseph's marriage. And in Holy Scripture, those who, the remnant are those who remain hopeful, who remain in fidelity, steadfast fidelity to God. In 2 Kings, I love what it says about the remnant, that they take root downward and they bear fruit upward. Let's say that again. They take root downward and bear fruit upward. They are firmly established in the earth, but with their eyes and lives making a perpetual offering to the Father. 
For the sake of the remnant, God preserves the life of the world, just as in the days of Noah. Just as for the sake of the righteous, God says that he would not destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet he finds no one righteous there. We should say that Jesus himself is the very image of this remnant. And we must say that the church herself is a remnant people. When the remnant keeps fidelity, all of God's people, indeed the whole world, wins. Later on this evening, hopefully some 49ers fans, I'm going to give you my bias from the outset, will we'll stand there and they'll shoot up out of their couches and say, we won! And they'll act like crazy people. And yet they never put on a helmet. They never put on pads. They never went to a practice. They never threw a ball. And yet they say, we won. Vicariousness runs in our veins as human beings. We need a remnant witness in this world. So here, Simeon and Anna are an image of this steadfastness, this vicarious witness on behalf of God's people there in the temple where God no longer is until that very day. They alone have been waiting. And Simeon takes this child Jesus in his arms and blesses him and utters that wonderfully familiar canticle. If you pray evening prayer, you pray it every day. Or Compline, you pray it every day. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. Listen to that. He has meditated upon the word of God and what does he believe has happened? The hopes of the word have been fulfilled. Now let me leave in peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of thy people Israel. We say it every day, acting with Simeon as a faithful remnant. Simeon's very name means simply obedient. He can die now because the hopes of the nation have been fulfilled. He has seen God's salvation. He has seen the light to the Gentiles. Simeon never, never gave up believing, not for a moment, that the Messiah would bring forth salvation not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. Israel becoming a blessing to the whole world. And Simeon also gives that word of prophecy to Mary. Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is spoken against. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. It is a deeply mysterious saying, but the church father Tertullian says that it denotes exactly what Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The identity of the Son of God is not obvious to an unbelieving world. I often sit and say things like this to myself, but, but, but it's so overwhelmingly there in Scripture. How can people not see this? And I have to be reminded that faith is a gift. It's only known by those to whom God chooses to reveal it. And with Mary, we will suffer the pain of this witness and this fidelity. 
She bears the pain of her child's life. She bears the pain of Jesus on the cross. So intimate is her identity with him. Next, we meet Anna, an old woman. She's lived in the temple for a long time, perhaps for as long as she's been a widow, maybe as much as 60 years living there, holed up in the temple. She is of the tribe of Asher, and so she is a rather strange kind of Jew to be living in the temple. I mean, I'm sure there were people who said, what's the Samaritan doing in the temple? She's not of the tribe of Judah. She's not of the tribe of Benjamin. She's not a Levite, but she's there living in the temple. Being of the tribe of Asher, as we're reminded in the daily office this past week in the readings, her tribal name means happy. I love that we have these two, happy and obedience, together. And what does Anna do? She simply gives happy thanks to God and tells of the Lord to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She gives witness to the remnant, rejoicing in God, just as Mary had rejoiced in the salvation of God herself. Now, my point of bringing all of this before you today is simply to say that we must revive in our day an understanding of what it means to be a remnant people, maintaining holiness both in the home and in the church, in the church and in the home, and not only in church and home, but in the world as well. A life of witness, a life of fidelity, a life of patient waiting for the Lord's return. To be a remnant people, to be a people through whom the the nations of the world will call themselves blessed. A people who live out holiness and radical fidelity to God as they wait for redemption. We are a people who can give witness and who do give witness to the light of the world, Jesus himself, and he is a light that cannot be hidden under a bushel. This faithful and enduring witness gives hope to the world even as the world does not understand it. That we should temper this witness, that we should temper our desire for sanctity and holiness and sort of be mediocre or lukewarm is for the church to neglect her calling to faithful endurance endurance built upon the foundations of hope and faith in Christ. As a friend of mine has recently put it, if you're going to be a pagan, fine, go be a pagan. If you're going to be a Christian, be a Christian. Stop wavering between the two. As we go forth from this church today, many of us bearing candles for our home, which have been blessed in the church, let us go forth thankful for the light of the world, Jesus, the great gift of God himself, And let us remember that he himself has called us the light of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.